be with you. Uh, some people ask, Michael, what on earth are you wearing? Are, are you um, bringing robes from the AM services into the PM service? Is that what's going on here? Are we really getting really liturgical? Uh, well, that might be your expectation, but no, that's not what's going on. This is actually called the Kurta, and it was given to me two years ago by some roommates of ours who lived with Tracy and myself, uh, from, and they were Christians from Pakistan. And uh, according to my roommate, a lot of the men in Pakistan will wear this to go out on a night wearing jeans, and uh, this was pretty common dress in Pakistan. And I thought, well, this is a good, this is a good day to wear this. It's a good day, not because I'm trying to look like a priest, but to remember my friends uh, and to remember their people, the Pakistani people. Uh, there's only about 1% of Pakistan is, consists of those who are Christian. And they grew up in Pakistan and they told us stories of how difficult it was to be and to be a Christian in Pakistan. The church is persecuted, and so I wear it on their behalf. But something else is going on this weekend, it occurred to me, that I also um, think it might be appropriate to wear something that's black. And it's, there's two things going on this weekend. One is, this is Sanctity of Life Sunday, in which we remember all those who have never had the opportunity to, to breathe and to be with us and it seems right and good to mourn them. At the same time, there's something else to mourn, and it's Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, tomorrow is Martin Luther King Day, and it's a day in which we remember his assassination. It's a day in which we remember the many sacrifices of those who were mistreated and the rising up of many and bringing about civil rights a movement which continue, needs to continue, does it not? In which we need to continue to see justice for all. So, join me in a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, we, we pray that you would be with us now and that you would move in our hearts and that our ears would be unstopped. We pray, Lord, that we would know that you are the God who reigns we pray, O oh Lord, that as we look to you, that you would change us even as we reflect on your word. And we pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, one way to understand the Gospel of Mark, and we can put the, the slide up there, one way to understand the Gospel of Mark, and I think it's an important uh, perspective that informs the entire gospel is that there was much persecution going on against the Christians uh, very early on in the first century that continued for, for a number of centuries. And that persecution informs the very writing of the gospel of Mark. Because as Christians, Christians had an expectation because Jesus preached the kingdom and when you think about the kingdom, what do you think about? Promise, power, justice, total harmony, victory. And that was the kingdom being preached. The kingdom of God has come. Glory, hallelujah. And that was the message of Jesus Christ, that the kingdom have, of God has come. But our dear brothers and sisters were faced with a cruel reality. The cruel reality that their expectations of what the kingdom would be did not square with the reality that they were facing. They were being rejected. They were being persecuted. Many were being cruel to them. How could this be? How could the kingdom message be true that Jesus had brought and proclaimed and at the same time that there could be so much rejection. And I think the Gospel of Mark in general and Mark chapter 4, as we bring our attention to focus on Mark chapter 4 tonight, and particularly the story of these parables, helps to shed light 
on understanding the misperceptions and the false or faulty expectations that many of the Christians had. And I think to, uh, to get at this, we can begin to understand why the Gospel of Mark was written, which was about persecution. Let me show you a little bit of how we get there. It begins by first understanding who wrote the Gospel of Mark. And uh, I said this two weeks ago, I'll say it to you again, you might want to take notes. And uh, I know there's a lot of paper that's been handed out to you, grab a pencil that's in front of you, take notes. I did it last week, just to, so I'm not just telling you, but I did it as I listened to Pastor Chris, and it actually helped me pay attention and to follow along, and, and I, so I, I challenge you to take notes. It's a good practice as you, as you listen uh, to Scripture teaching. So who wrote the Gospel of Mark? It's an important question. Well, Mark, of course, duh. No, actually, nowhere in the Gospel of Mark does it say that Mark wrote the gospel. The gospel itself is anonymous. But what we find out is that very early on in the, in the church is that universally across the Roman Empire, Christians believed that it was Mark or John Mark who wrote the gospel of Mark. Uh, Mark and Peter were actually connected, and this is an important point, Peter and Mark were connected, and we learn uh, in Acts chapter 12 that when Peter was released from prison, he went to Mark's mother's house. And remember, he kept on knocking on the door, and they finally let him in. It was, and Peter went and knew who Mark was. And then later on in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, an important kind of verse to get at the background of what's going on, is that Peter says that Mark is with him in Babylon. And Babylon was a code word for Rome. And, and so the very first attestation of who wrote the Gospel of Mark comes from us, from a, a man, a bishop from Asia Minor. Uh, his name was Papias. Papias was writing in about 110 AD. And Papias, this is what he says. He says that, that he talked with, directly with the Apostle John and that the Apostle John told him that Mark wrote the Gospel, and that in writing the Gospel, Mark specifically wrote down the stories and the eyewitness, the eyewitness testimony of the Apostle Peter. So that's Papias' claim in about 110 AD, in which he says he's heard from the Apostle John, who was traveling around, that it was actually Mark who wrote the stories, and all of the, the stories of Mark are based on the eyewitness testimony of the apostle Peter. And you could spend a lot of time, and scholars have done this, and looked at how much of the Gospel of Mark seems to actually be written from the perspective of Peter. And I won't go into those details now, but I think there's good evidence to actually uh, believe that it's, it is indeed the eyewitness testimony of Peter. Should we believe it? Should we believe what Papias told us? Well, I think uh, there's good reason to actually uh, to, to believe what, what he had said. One, because it would be a really funny lie. Why would, why would they attest, and why would the church proclaim that, that the gospel was written by Mark, John Mark? John Mark, who is an un, basically an unknown disciple of Jesus, who didn't even know Jesus firsthand. As well as, this is the same John Mark who ended up causing a division between the Apostle Paul and Barnabas, because Barnabas and Mark were cousins. And they had some, Paul and Barnabas had some fallout, which eventually got made up. Mark's not a very good, credible sort of person. If, if you're going to mix this up, you're going to use some kind of person's name that has credibility and authority. Um, you know, like Thomas, one of the apostles, who we don't have any writings. Well, well, actually, that's where some of the fabrication starts. Later on in the second century, we have something called the Gospel of Thomas, with the 114 sayings of Jesus. And the Christians around the Roman Empire, by and large, rejected it. They said, Thomas didn't write this. And there's another reason. It's a funny lie, but it's also a problem because it's a difficult lie to create. 
If you're into conspiracy theories, the conspiracy theory is something like, well, someone wrote the Gospel of Mark and then later on inserted it and said, hey, this is Peter and this is what Jesus did. And, but in fact, that's not what Peter said and it's in fact what no, Jesus never did anything like this. The church just fabricated and made it up. Do you know that's a very difficult lie to pull off? And that's in fact what many actually liberal scholars tend to try to argue for, that these were just fabrications that came much later. But the fabrication idea is very difficult to actually demonstrate because there's two factors that really push against it. One is that if Peter, people who heard the gospel of Mark preached by Peter, the words, the oral preaching of Peter, would have seen the written testimony and they would say, that's not what Peter said. How can you say that? That doesn't make any sense. I heard what Peter said. That couldn't have been, this is not Peter's, and the church would have rejected it. And not only that, but we had many other eyewitnesses of Jesus' life, of what he said and of what he taught. Now, if you receive and start reading the Gospel of Mark, and then you have other eyewitnesses like the Apostle John or others who the other apostles and other disciples who saw the very things, they would say, that's not what happened. I was there. I saw it. Or one generation later, I listened to John, Apostle John, and what he told me. I know that what that is saying, that, those writings, they can't, be, they can't be true. And that's why, in fact, these conspiracy theories, are, they really not, they don't fit with the evidence. The evidence of the, the, the Orthodox Church has been that these eyewitnesses, they saw these things, they understood and remembered what Jesus said, and they recorded these things in a faithful way, and then these, this spread. And the eyewitnesses says these writings, which we now have, because we don't have the eyewitnesses anymore, we don't have the next generation who heard the eyewitnesses, we have the writings of the eyewitnesses, and it would have been very difficult, very difficult, Part of the reason it would be difficult is because the church was under intense persecution. Intense persecution. There was no centralized church going on in the first century. And so you had Christians all over the Roman Empire. And what it turns out is that they had the same message without any centralized government of a church. They had the same message despite intense persecution. And moreover, they had the same message despite the fact that they had no reason to lie about it. If Jesus didn't ri really rise from the dead, there's, let's just move on to a better story. But that's not what happened. And they stuck to the story and even were willing to die for it despite, uh, because, well, because they saw it. They heard it. And they had to give their lives to it. Well, that's some of what lies behind the, the Gospel of Mark. The Romans, they deeply disliked the Christians, and we have lots of evidence, even back to the first century. In fact, this is a, a second century inscription which lies behind me. Uh, it's, the, it's, a, it's Roman graffiti, and this is actually the earliest writing or the earliest depiction of the crucifixion that exists. It comes from the city of Rome. It comes from the second century. It was carved on marble. And the writing says, Alexander worships his God. And as you can see from the picture, it's a crucifixion story of Jesus depicted as a, a donkey. And there is Alexander raising his hand in worship. The Romans despised the Jews. But they even further despised the Christians for having created a so-called new religion. At least the Jews had an old religion and they could respect that. But the Christians, these Christians were deeply, deeply despised by the Romans. So much so that, uh, well, there's, there's a lot of evidence. I'll just quickly mention one. In 64 AD, the Emperor Nero, who was an atrocious sort of emperor, uh, there were, in 64 AD, there were lots of fires that were going on in Rome. In fact, uh, the vast majority of Rome burnt down. And 
Nero was such a kind of person that the Roman citizenry believed that it was likely Nero who actually ordered mobs to lay fire to the city of Rome in order so that he could rebuild things. Now, we don't know if that was ever true. That was, the, that was what was contested. That was one of the conspiracy things because Nero was such a madman himself that it was not uh, impossible to believe. Well, Nero was being accused, and so Nero did what any leader might do who has the bent to do it. He turned and he started blaming the Christians for the fire. And Tacitus, who writes in about 80 AD, or between 70 and 80 AD, he's a Roman historian. He does not like the Christians. He makes this clear, but this is what he says about Nero and the fire of Rome. He says, Nero substituted as culprits, and he punished with the utmost, utmost refinements of cruelty a class of men who were loathed for their vices, whom the crowd styled Christians. Vast numbers because of this fire. So Nero said, they did it. And so vast numbers were convicted. Not so much on the count of arson, because that was pretty hard to prove, as for the just hatred that people had for them. And Tacitus goes on to say, and derision accompanied their end. They were covered, it says, they were covered with wild beast skins. And then they were allowed, the wild dogs were allowed to come and to attack and kill the Christians who had been covered in these animal skins. This is some of the sport that was made of these poor brothers and sisters. Or he says, or they were fastened on crosses, and when daylight failed, they were burned as lamps in the night. And Nero offered his gardens for these lamps to burn. And it's believed that Peter himself, according to Clement, who's writing in about 95 AD, that Peter himself was crucified at this time, potentially, maybe likely, under the persecution under Nero. And it's part of the reason why, uh, well, there's this funny little fact in chapter 1, verse 13 of the Gospel of Mark. It says that, Mark says that Jesus went out into the desert, and he says that he was with the wild animals. And scholars have wondered, why did, why did Mark include that? Because Luke and, and Matthew don't include this little comment about he was with the wild animals. And if Mark was writing right after the death of Peter, it's perhaps an allusion to the Christians who had been literally with the wild animals in the Colosseum. And so the Christians, they're, they're struggling. They're under intense persecution. They believe in the kingdom of God, and yet that is how the Christians are thought of. Asses and made fun of. And so the Christian have to have their expectations reset. And that's where I want to direct our thoughts from Mark chapter 4, because the parables help us reset our expectations. They help and direct us from faulty expectations to listen to the mystery of the kingdom. And this is where Jesus teaches. So three points. Uh, here's my thesis statement. It's the secret of the kingdom confronts faulty expectations. The secret of the kingdom, this is like fifth grade arguments, the secret of the kingdom confronts faulty expectations. Well, how so? Well, let me bring you three realities about the kingdom that we see here in Mark 4. That the kingdom can be shunned, that the kingdom sometimes needs to be stealthy, and third, that the kingdom is a seed. Let me take you through these. First, the kingdom can be shunned. We expect the kingdom to be overpowering, but the kingdom can be shunned and rendered fruitless. Here's a seed. Parable. Is it working? Yeah. There's three parables here in, in Mark chapter 4, and they're all about seed. And Jesus is comparing the kingdom to a seed. Now, I thought the kingdom would be fire. I thought the kingdom would be a sword. No. 
The kingdom is a seed. It's fragile. It's weak. It's resistible. The kingdom is easily crushed. That's the kingdom. It's crushable. It can be rejected. People can say no to it. People can take this precious seed and utterly destroy it. That is the nature of the kingdom. I thought it would come in power. No. It comes only as a seed. And in the first parable, the parable of the sower, or the parable of the soils, depending on what you want to call it, if you look at your Bible in verse 15 of Mark chapter 4, the seed can be removed by Satan through the hard heart. Or verse 17, people can not only have a hard heart or they can, they can lose heart because of affliction and of trouble. In verse 19, the seed can be crippled by thorns. So, and the thorns are when someone has a heart for small, smaller things. He says, the worries of life or the pursuit of wealth or other worldly desires. And so this first parable is meant to explain why the kingdom is rejectable, why it can be so easily shunned. And part of this is to reflect the nature of the king. You see, the king could have come in power, in glory, in majesty, in illumination. He could have overwhelmed all of us with with such attributes, because that's the nature of the king. But the king veiled himself in order to approach us humbly and to invite us in love to love him. He could have pressured us. He could have coerced us. He could have demanded that we turn. But he doesn't do that. The king invites us because he wants you to love him. Not because you have to, but because you want to. Out of the depths of your heart to give your entire life over to him. That's the nature of this king. And so is the nature of the kingdom. He brings it only as a seed so that you can accept it, so that you can bring it into your life, and so that you can experience a, a tremendous growth. That is the promise. Or you can say no. The kingdom can be shunned. So we expect the kingdom to be overpowering, but the kingdom can be shunned and fruitless. And that is the very nature of it. It's a reminder, at least to me, to, uh, to listen. And that is throughout the gospel of, of Mark, and especially in, in Mark chapter 4, in Mark chapter 4, we have this constant remembering of the ear to listen. Fourteen times we hear about listening, hearing, or the ear. Verse 24, it says, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. In other words, what you hear, if you measure it, if you listen very carefully to it and examine it and go down into its depths, it will increase in abundance and in harvest. But if you ignore it, it will disappear. That is the nature of the seed. So it can be shunned. But number two, the kingdom sometimes comes in a stealthy way by God's design. The seed or the kingdom must come in a form of stealth. We expect the kingdom, it should be this way, to be openly proclaimed. Everyone from the rooftops must hear who Jesus is, the king, and the coming of his kingdom. That should be our expectation, but the kingdom sometimes actually has to be camouflaged and spoken only indirectly. And I believe this is the teaching, if you look at verse 11, uh, verse 10, and 10 through 12, this is what Jesus said. And when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables, and he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, 
everything is in parables so that, now he's quoting Isaiah chapter 6, 6, 9, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And many have seen this as a, diff a very difficult saying of Jesus because it seems to be implying that it's Jesus' intention to use parables in order to harden people's hearts and to block them from accepting the gospel. And on the, first, on, on the face of it, it seems to be what he's saying, but most commentators have said, no, that's actually not, not at all what's, what's happening. And probably part of the key is that word, so that, right before the quote. So that probably means as a result of, or as a result which is to say this, the parables that Jesus gives, and the reason why Jesus turns to parables, is not to harden the hearts of his listeners. He speaks in parables not to harden their hearts, but in light of their hard hearts. Do you see the difference? Because they have hard hearts, Jesus resorts to the speaking of parables. And that's because parables have this specific dimension to them, and the dimension is this. When you speak in a parable, it's this indirect story. Those who have hard hearts, they say, huh, what? I don't get it. And they move on. Those who are of the good soil, they say, huh, what's that? Wait a minute, can you tell me a little, what did you mean by that? I want to understand this a little bit better. You see, so the giving of a parable is a spiritual test. It divides people. It divides the hard-hearted and potentially the hostile from those who are open and who want to hear the word. And so Jesus, in his messianic call and his mission to bring the good news and then to go to the cross and to die, he's protecting his mission because the, many of the rulers have already decided in the previous chapter, they've already decided to murder Jesus. It says the, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they're already consulting with one another how to kill Jesus. And so Jesus has to protect his own mission. He has to protect himself as the sower in order to get to the place of where he is ultimately going to go and to die. And so he speaks in parables as a form of protection. And it divides those who are hard-hearted and hostile from those who want to hear the truth. And so why is Mark, because Mark especially throughout the entire Gospel of Mark, he focuses on the secret nature of Jesus' mission. We've heard it over and over again already in the first three chapters in which Jesus heals someone. He says, shh, don't tell anyone. Jesus casts out a demon. He tells the demon, do not tell anyone that I am the Son of God. And this is repeated over and over and over in the Gospel of Mark. And this is what's going on with the parables. It's the same part. He's on a mission, and he's protecting his mission. Why does Mark focus on this? Because of the first receivers of the hearing of the gospel of Mark. They too are under persecution. They too are under threat. And so the, the attention that Mark is giving in the gospel is to tell the Christian community that you cannot wear, given the hostile circumstances, you do not wear your faith on your, on your sleeve. You have to camouflage it. Under hostility, what's the, what's the instinct? It's to be quiet. It's to be utterly silent. It's not to tell anyone. And you know, I know you, you're living or working or studying in Boston. There's some hostility out there. You know that you can't wear the gospel on your sleeve because something might happen. And I can tell you story after story of various forms of persecution and people losing their jobs or people not getting promotions in the university not because they did this sort of thing, because they were too, a little bit too exposed. Well, the, the way around this is parables or the model of the parable in which we do not speak directly, we speak indirectly. We do not go silent, we speak in parables, which is a way we can protect ourselves without going silent. We say something on the lines of, uh, oh, I was, uh, yeah, I was thinking about some spiritual things this weekend, and I was with, uh, I was with the community, and we were, we were talking um, about some spiritual realities that were really, really awesome, and it was a good weekend for me. What? Now, some people are like, okay, whatever. 
And other people might come to you a little bit later and say, what's going on? Where were you? Oh, yeah, I was at Park Street Church, and we were talking about parables, and we were talking about Jesus and the power of Jesus, and it was really gripping to me. Now, that's, you go from indirect to direct. And we don't always have to do this, but in environments of hostility, you think you go to many Muslim countries today, there's a necessity for the Christian community to protect because the seed is dangerous. The seed is hated. And even so, the sower is hated. So let the seed, Jesus' part of Jesus' point here is that let the seed be destroyed, but don't let the sower, at least until the appropriate time. So the kingdom, uh, this, this first point was the kingdom can be shunned. Now the second, the reason why Jesus gives parables is that sometimes the kingdom has to be stealthy. And I think that suggests to us a manner in which within hostile environments, we can act as Christians in sharing the gospel. We cannot be silent. I don't care how secular the place that your work environment is, we all have a responsibility and obligation to talk about Jesus, to sow the seed, to tell others. But there's a way that we have to do it, especially in those hostile environments. You go indirect, and you look for an opening in the heart. Tell me a little bit more. Oh, yeah, I'd love to tell you a little bit more. And that's the division between the hard soil and the good soil. Well, let me go to this third point. So the kingdom uh, is, can be shunned. The kingdom sometimes have to, has to be shared in a stealthy way. And then finally is this point, is that the kingdom is a seed. It's a seed. We expect the kingdom to be immediate, total. But the kingdom though it is divinely energized by God, it's primarily a seed during this time. Now let's look at verse 26, because Jesus gives three parables. This is the second parable, another seed parable. He says in verse 26, a man scatters seed on the ground, night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows. No, though he does not know, though he does not know how, all by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, and then the head, and then the full kernel in the head. And as soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it, because the harvest has come. And what's the point of the parable? The point of the parable is that the growth comes from the Lord. He alone is the energy that creates the growth. I heard one preacher say it this way, you can sow and then go to sleep, as he as he says in verse 26 and verse 27. Sow and sleep. That's the pattern. It's not on you. It's not on your particular ways of talking about the gospel or sharing about Jesus. We have the simple responsibility to share the good news of Jesus Christ, to sow the seed. And you leave the rest to God and his, his work. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That's in Zechariah. It's not us who's going to spread the kingdom. It's not us who causes the growth. Not at all. It is the spirit of God alone who has that power. And so we can trust in that. We can sow and we can sleep. But then there's this third parable, beginning in verse 31. And I think this begins to get at what our expectation should be in regards to the kingdom. What are our right expectations? Verse 31, Jesus says, The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants, with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. Now, I think this, uh, this particular parable has been strongly misinterpreted by certain Christians it's usually called the post-millennial position, in which it's believed that the, the kingdom on earth will grow and grow and increase and increase in an ever-increasing way. And they use this particular parable to defend that, uh, that idea. I think our own experience demonstrates that's not over 2,000 years. That's not how the kingdom operates. It does sometimes grow in miraculous and wonderful ways, but other times it's very dormant. And I think what Jesus is contrasting the nature of the kingdom between two realities. 
It is a seed now. And it will be a full-grown tree, especially when he returns. And I think when you look at all of the teaching about the kingdom around the New Testament, and you try to put it together, there is this two stages of the kingdom. The kingdom comes in a seed form, and that's the reality that where we're living now. But when he returns, the kingdom will come in its full consummation. The full mustard tree will be there. And all the birds, which is probably the nations, and the spiritual powers that lie behind the nations, will be perched there in that tree. So what should be our expectation? Is the kingdom here? Yes, the kingdom is absolutely here now as a seed. It's a seed. It's not the full-grown tree, so you've got to adjust those expectations. But if it is a seed, then what does it mean? Well, let me give you four, and with this I'll close. First of all, what should we expect about the seed, the kingdom, as a seed? Well, first, we should expect that if you receive Jesus and his teaching, you can absolutely expect that within your life you will be transformed. It is an utter guarantee. And that the more that you listen to the word, the more that you bend your heart to him, the more that you yield over to him, you will experience 30-fold or 60-fold or 100-fold within your life of the seed of the kingdom as it operates and it transforms you in your heart and your mind and your life and your everything that's about you and what you do and what you say and what, how you talk. You should definitely expect that seed power in your own life. But secondly, you should expect that in the sowing of the seed, in the lives of others, the people will come to Christ. You can absolutely expect that as you faithfully sow, not silent, how many here have been silent in the giving of the word at your neighborhood, at work, in your school? Are you silent? No, we're called to sow. Sow, and if you sow, and as you pray, the Spirit will bless the sowing. We don't know how, it's not in our control, but He will bless the sowing. And you should look for fruit. We should expect it. And if you're not seeing the fruit, then something's not quite right. The third expectation is this. We should expect that the church be like the kingdom. We should expect that the church be a people of the kingdom. That the kingdom ethic, the kingdom way of thinking, that all of that Jesus has given in the form of the kingdom will characterize who we are as a people. So we'll be a people of hospitality. We'll be like Jesus in, in Mark chapter 2, verse 15, where it says, And the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that Jesus was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. If Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners, so should we. We should be welcoming them into our home. We should be welcoming them into our, into our community. We should be lifting them up and honoring them, loving them, so no one feels excluded. There are people who have been, over the last several months, out on our very curb. Those people should be welcomed in. And we as a community should be such a community of hospitality and welcome. It will be difficult because we want to protect ourselves and we want to watch out and maybe there's a lot of danger and maybe those, those things are true. But no matter how we exactly do it, we need to be a people who show hospitality to tax collectors and sinners or whatever that means in our day. Thank you. Secondly, we need to be a holy community. A holy, H-O-L-Y, community. A community that repudiates the idols of our time. The idols of sex, and the idols of power, and the idols of money. The church tends to nitpick on certain idols, but then have a completely blind eye to other idols. How can that be? 
No, the church, as a kingdom people, will recognize all of the idols and will point them out, and we as a people will refuse to allow that kind of idolatry into our own lives. We will point it out, and we will begin to conform more and more as a holy community. Third, or uh, talking about how we should be a, a community, a beloved community of the kingdom, we have to be a generous community. A generous community. A community that is using its finances on behalf of the spread of the gospel and the care of the poor. And we have to analyze ourselves and how, what we are prioritizing well, consider in Acts chapter 4, it continues to speak to me. There was no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them. They brought the money from the sales. They put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Are we that kind of people? We could be if we repent and give everything over for the use of the kingdom. So we should expect, as we embrace the seed, to change our own life, to change other people's lives as we sow the seed. We should expect it to change and transform us as a church. We have to live into that. And it has to begin with you. It has to begin with you. Of that hospitality and that generosity and that holy living. Well, there's a final expectation. is that we, we should expect that we as a church would have a prophetic voice calling our culture to account. We should have a prophetic voice calling our culture to account. <laughs> you know, for, from my perspective, this weekend is a deplorable weekend to be preaching. It's... Um, because they're utterly complicated issues that this weekend represents, from abortion to racism and injustices around racism. Isn't it ironic that this weekend, this Sunday and this Monday, are the days that people within our nation have opted to recognize, uh, to remember? And the black church, my brothers and sisters in the black church, they have chosen to focus especially on racial injustice. Whereas the white evangelical church in the United States has not paid a lot of attention to racism, and they've spent a lot of time focused on abortion. Isn't that strange? I find that utterly strange. Jesus says, and I think this is true, if a house is divided, how can it stand? No, the church must be a kind of people, not just our local church, but the churches across America. We should be a united people that doesn't cherry-pick the issues that we really want to champion and, and turn somewhat of a blind eye to the other issues that we really don't want to pay attention to. We need to be a kind of people that recognizes that both of these things are important, both racism and abortion. And I, let me just say this. I know I'm probably going to get in trouble for all this, but whatever, I don't care. <clears throat> so, in my work, I, uh, in thinking about medicine and healthcare, uh, that Tracy and I, uh, we, we wrote a book, and around this book was one of the key concepts was identifying an idolatry. And that idolatry was the separation or the dichotomy of private and public, which permeates our culture. These are two categories, private and public. It dominates how we're supposed to think about our culture. And that directs what you do and how you live, where in, depending on whether you're in a pi uh, public sphere or a private sphere. That categorization of public and private is unbiblical. It does not stand the way of thinking of Scripture. You cannot think as a Christian, I would argue, based on Scripture, you cannot think that way because Jesus Christ is Lord of all. 
And if he's Lord of all, he's Lord of everything. There is no public and private where I'm religious in my private life and not religious in my... That doesn't work. It doesn't work if you're going to follow the Bible and follow Jesus. You critique the dichotomies that are given to us because they're false. And they bind us by enabling us not to really see things clearly. And it's the same thing around our own other dichotomy that we've been dealt with, this partisan politics. It's this dichotomy between the right and the left, in which the right has chosen a certain set of issues, and the left has, has taken another set of issues. And the reality is, as Christians, both groups are right, and both groups are utterly wrong. And I've, well, I've, I learned this 20 years ago. I know I'm going long, but I, I got to say this. I learned 20 years ago, I was standing right over there in that spot. A brand new Christian, he's a very smart guy, MD, PhD from MIT and Harvard. He had just become a Christian, and he was thinking about these political things, and he said to me, Michael, I just don't get this. How can we as Christians not be against abortion, but not for the poor? Should we be for the poor and for the unborn? Isn't that the logical way of thinking? Doesn't that what the scripture really uphold? That we as a church would be for the marginalized in all ways? That's always stuck with me. David over there told me that 20 years ago, and I've never forgotten it, because that's exactly right. But why do we live in a society that divides the church? Why do we live in a society that divides our ability to vote on moral issues that represent the kingdom? I'll tell you why. It's because the principalities and powers of darkness have created a scheme to hold the church across America down. It's a political scheme that forces us to vote one way or the other. And it's utterly mistaken. And the church needs, I believe, needs to rise up. I'm not, I don't know how, but I can see a moral way of thinking about these things. The church must say no to this. We are for the poor, and we must find ways to help the poor. And we are for the unborn, and we must find ways to support women in having their children. We must critique the dichotomies that are part of the idolatry that binds us. And if we would have such a prophetic voice, what is possible? What is possible? I have a dream that the church would stand as one, black and white and yellow, every color and kaleidoscope, that we would stand as one in Jesus Christ. And we would oppose these darknesses. In fact, well, I won't say it. That, that's, I'll say that's one dream. I'll say another dream. It's that the church would be on its knees in passion and would cry out for revival across this city. But we're not doing that. We're passive and we're, par we're partially asleep. We've got to wake up. We've got to believe and call our city and the churches to a place of repentance or to a place of becoming a prophetic people that identifies the idols and calls for a new way. This is the message of the kingdom. The kingdom is the kingdom is a place that can be, a seed that can be shunned. The kingdom is a, sometimes has to be camouflaged and in order to protect itself. The kingdom is this seed. It's a seed with enormous potential. And I'll finish with this. Um, this fall, I was able to go and, uh, go and visit a, uh, my friend See where those pictures go. Went and visited a friend. I grew up in Reading, Massachusetts, and um, oh, you figure it, it figures it disappears on me. Let's see if I can get it another way. Hold on, I'm going to show you this. There we go. Here's this is where I grew up. I grew up on Fox Run Lane in Reading, Massachusetts, a little tiny breakfast community just north, 11 miles north of the city. And in the fall, I took my dog for a long walk, and we I walked around and. And it was a beautiful fall day, as you can see, and, and uh, hadn't been there in more, a couple decades, but this is the house I grew up in. Uh, and it was this 
really nice, quaint neighborhood, town forest behind me. It's an amazing place uh, to, grew up, to grow up in. And I was astonished as I was looking around this property. First, I, found, I, met, my, um, I met my friend who I grew up with, and, and uh, his name was Joey, and I hadn't seen him for a very long time. And, uh, and we got talking, and it was, it was really sweet to, to see an old, an old elementary school friend that I hadn't seen, uh, because he bought his parents' house right next door, and so we were, we were able to talk. Before I met Joey, I saw this tree. Do you see this tree? It's about a 40-foot tall evergreen tree. And I was astonished. I planted that tree when I was in second grade on Arbor Day at Killam Elementary School. The, all the kids in school received a little tiny tree. And uh, Joey and I, uh, we, we both together planted uh, my tree on my yard and his tree, which was right next door, on his. And uh, I, I remember it very clearly. Joey actually was cutting his grass a year or so later, and he cut down his tree. He was dead. <laughs> I was looking at this tree before I saw Joey, and I said, wow, Lord, that's amazing. I can't believe I planted that thing, and here, here we are all of these years later and what it's become. I've done nothing, but praise you, God. That's an amazing, amazing thing. Then when I was talking to Joey, Joey said, hey, Michael, I, because we were talking about the neighborhood and what's, how it's changed. Michael, you planted that tree. He, rem he remembered. I couldn't believe it. Someone else knew that I planted this tree. He said, I, I, I tell my kids all the time that, that my elementary school friend, the next door neighbor, he planted that tree. Look how big it is. Look what has become. That's the kingdom. That's the potential. The kingdom can be crushed as a seed. But if you give it life and you allow God to do something, he can do something more powerful in your life and other people's lives and across the city and across the nation. That is the power of the kingdom. A seed. Because within the seed is the potential and the energy of God to do something more powerful than we could ask or imagine. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would grow the seed in us. We pray that we would submit to you and that we would honor you. We wait on you and we call on you to do a work that only you can do. For we need you, O oh Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.